This is RDQI. Backed by popular demand, it's Personal Finance Round 2. If you remember back in Personal Finance Round 1, we talked about how to create a cash flow surplus. In this episode, we're going to talk about what to do with that surplus. That's right. This week, RDQI tackles investing. All of the information in this episode is purely for entertainment and discussion purposes only. None of this content constitutes financial or legal advice. Neither Ryan nor I are professional financial advisors, nor do we hold ourselves out to be. You should always, always consult professional financial and legal advice before engaging in any investment activity. This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Dave's Relish. Dave's Relish. Relish in pain and suffering. Hey, Dave. So, uh, Uncle Joe cut me a check that I received recently, and let's just say that I didn't need to use it for anything like rent or food or paying off student loans, and it was just sitting in my pocket. What would be a really good way to start investing that stimulus check? Oh, <laughs> All right. Well, where to begin? So, so first of all, I want to, I want to frame this in more of a relatable context, um, because not everybody has uncle Joe who just, you know, drops a couple grand at their, at their, you know, feet, right? It happens every once in a while. doesn't happen to everybody. Yeah. Um, so following up on our our first personal finance conversation, right? That conversation, we really talked about cash flow. That's really the first step in getting our financial house in order, right? Mm. We got to make sure that our, our cash flow month over month is positive. Um, what we didn't touch on is, okay, well, when that cash flow, when we get it to a place where it's positive month over month, well, then you end up building a pile of cash pretty quickly. What do you do with that cash that you pile up when your cash flow is positive, when you're taking in more than you're spending? Um, and, and you know, if you, if you follow that cash flow principle, then you can, you know, within a couple, depending on your income, right, you know, a couple months, several months, a year, two years, whatever it is, you can find yourself in the exact same position that you are today with, hey, I've got this excess money that I don't need for cash flow purposes. It's ex- it's surplus. What do I do with it? Mm-hmm. Right? Right, because you don't want to just like have it sitting away in a savings account because you're not going to gain enough interest to keep up with inflation. So your money isn't even really working for you and you're losing value actually over the long run, right? So you got you to put that money exactly. to work somehow. Yeah. I mean, inflation is, you know, averages around 3%. It very likely will increase rapidly here um, for a number of reasons we don't have to dive into, but we just injected a trillion dollars in cash into the economy. That's going to drive some form of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just, cons- you know, let's let's say that it's the average of 3%. Your average savings account is going to give you, you know, half a percent at best, unless you're in these high yield accounts. Um, so you're losing money. <laughs> you're losing two and a half percent year over year by, by keeping your money in a checking or even just a bank savings account. Um, but investing is daunting. It's really daunting. It, 
it's more daunting than the cash flow equation. Um, there's so much to do, right? Uh, you know, do you dump it all in Dogecoin? Um, <laughs> invest in Tesla. Invest in your brother's cousin's pineapple stand. <laughs> pineapple stand. Sure. There's, there's always, always money, money in the pineapple stand. Uh, yep. Um, but it doesn't have to be. So there is a, a movement called FIRE, which is Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's, uh, it's this movement, I and mean, it's really basically what it says. It's, um, it, you know, people who save and invest, save aggressively, invest somewhat conservatively, and we'll talk about what that really means, um, and can retire reasonably early with, you know, with without having just uh, incredible amounts of luck or... Um, crazy high paying jobs. Um, obviously that stuff helps, but it's really just about understanding, you know, how much surplus can you put away, um, into investments and how much money do you need to retire? Which is, you know, what is your number, which is smaller than you might think. Um, so I know that's kind of a long way to long winded way to set this up, but let's focus, I think first on your question, investments. What do I do with this surplus? There's obviously a lot of different investing strategies, but what any fire person will tell you is, you know, the first thing you should do is max your Roth IRA. Now, what that is, is if you have a salaried job, your, your employer very likely offers you some kind of 401k sure. or 4013b if you work in nonprofits, like if you're a teacher or um, if you work, you know, in, the, in public health. Okay. And what that is, is it's a, an employer sponsored, um, retirement plan that you put, you know, either before tax or after tax dollars into it. Um, but that comes directly out of your paycheck. A Roth IRA is something that you open up on your own through what's called a brokerage. So, um, not to plug them, but Merrill Lynch is, is what I use. <laughs> I can't comment. I just, I'm a bank of America customer. Um, I, you know, Bank of America and Merrill Lynch are linked, so it just makes it easier for me. I'm sure other brokerages are the same, uh, more or less. Um, but what a Roth IRA is, is it is a quote-unquote retirement account um, that allows you to put up to $6,000 of after-tax income into a year. And the benefit of a Roth is that that money, once it's in the Roth, you can invest it in various things. But all of that money, any gains, any dividends that are paid out, anything, will will just accrue and grow completely tax-free within that account. Right. So, and, it's, and it's limited, too. Like, if you have uh, income of, like, what, 250K, you can't, you don't have access to a Roth anymore, right? Something like that. It There's kind of a top end where it's it's trying to help out um, there is the the little guy, so to speak. Yeah, I want to say it's it's over a hundred k for a single person, and then I think it's uh, maybe two hundred for for married. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, you're not allowed to contribute anymore. Which we should also COA really quick, Dave. We are not offering financial advice. You should do your homework or talk to a qualified financial advisor before investing. We're just giving you maybe a framework of ways <laughs> to think about investing, and that's it. 
100%. Um, I am not a financial advisor. I am not a fiduciary. I have no, um, I am not offering any legal or financial advice. So, so as an example, right. Um, if, if I put, if I buy a, um, a share of Tesla, right. Just through a normal brokerage account and I, you know, Tesla goes up $200 and I sell, I would either pay ordinary or capital gains tax on that gain, right? I made $200 that becomes taxable, right? If I did that same transaction within a Roth, that $200 gain is completely tax free to me when I withdraw it. Okay. So what are the limitations on withdrawing? So yeah, exactly. There is a catch. Um, but I say, you know, so theoretically it's retirement, right? Um, you know, after age 65, you would, you would pull from that Roth account. But I say that in quotations because there's a number of other things that you can pull money from a Roth for without any kind of penalty. And there are things that I, most people will do if they're kind of, you know, gearing themselves towards building wealth. It's, you know, buying a, buying a home, um, paying for medical expenses, paying for your children's college tuition. All of these things, you can withdraw that money. So it's basically a vehicle to invest tax-free for very important life milestones. Can't you can't withdraw it to buy a car. Um, Man. But okay. that's, you know. No Ferrari for If you're, if you're financially savvy enough to be putting money in, in a Roth, you're probably not going to take it out to buy a car. Sure. Good point. Good point. So, so that's my first recommendation, right? You should be um, maxing it out as hard because putting some putting five to six grand into a retirement account on top of whatever four hundred one k you're taking out, it's a lot. That's a lot of money. That's a lot to ask. Um, but it is, you know, as you are investing, you should be unless you're unless you are needing some liquidity. Um, fairly quickly, like if you're trying to save for a gap year or something like that, but you still want to invest, well, don't invest in a Roth. You won't be able to pull out that money for a gap year. Right? You want to <laughs> right. invest in a, in a traditional brokerage account. Yeah. But if you're thinking about wealth building, you should absolutely be putting more, if not all, of your investment money through your Roth first. Right. And then once you hit the max, then you kind of have to figure out what to do with any excess that you are, you know, fortunate enough to have. Okay. I'm following you. That makes some sense to me. So, I mean, you, you mentioned that you have a little bit of choice in investing inside a Roth and you mentioned that the FIRE community seems to like conservative investments. So what, what do you mean by conservative or like a conservative mindset as far as investments are concerned? Yeah. So when people think about what instruments to put their money into, they probably think about stocks, right? Individual stocks. Um, but obviously that's very risky because you are investing in one single company. And so that company can very well go under. Um, you know, I, my, the first stock that I bought was a one share of compact computers and they don't exist anymore. <laughs> and if you had put, you know, a lot of money in compact computers, you would have lost all of your money by now. What fire investors do is they put a lot of money into what we call index funds. Um, so an index fund is basically a fund that tracks some, some other type of aggregate fund. So 
VTI is an example. It's a, it's a Vanguard, um, a Vanguard fund that tracks the US S&P 500. So you're basically buying a portion of all of the companies within the S&P 500. Um, and the, what you're doing is you are diversifying your holding by investing in the top, you know, 500, well, it's not the top 500 companies, but 500, you know, very influential established companies in the U S any one of those could go under, but if they do, it's one out of 500. <laughs> so, right, you right, know, right, right. Your, your, your risk is mitigated on the other, uh, on the flip side. So, so there's your conservative conservatism. Um, but the, conservatism is in quotes here because the S&P 500 has returned 7% a year historically since 1940 something. So (laughs) when you're putting money into this, like, yes, some years are going to be better than others. Um, You know, if you had begun to invest in 2019 and then you looked at your portfolio mid 2020, uh, you would have seen a pretty substantial loss. But if you looked at the same... (laughs) you know, VTI stock now, you'd see, I mean, I think it's like 40% since 2019. Um, but, but, you know, we're also in a kind of a crazy market period. Sure. But the, the point is, is that you can expect, you know, if you are going to take that money and put it in a Roth, meaning you are investing for the long term because you're likely, you know, not investing for your kid to go to school next year, you're investing for your kid to go to school in 20 years. Right, right, um, right. You know, or saving some of that for retirement. If you let it sit there and accrue and compound year over year over year, that money is going to build up very, very quickly. Because if you think it grows 7% a year, when you compound that, mm-hmm. the gains become exponential. Exactly. Yeah. If you have a hundred dollars, the next year it's a hundred and seven dollars, and whatever seven percent of a hundred and seven dollars grows to whatever that number is, and on and on and on it goes. Yeah. So it's using. Mm-hmm. It's basically, if I'm hearing you right, it's using the market, the market dynamics that we have access to in this country, and using a mechanism that allows you to basically earn wealth or gain wealth essentially tax-free. So that, like, why would you not participate in this system if you have the ability to do so? Is that what you're saying? Yep, 100%. Yeah, I mean, yeah. unfortunately, I did a little reading and prep for this about uh, some of the S&P uh, 500 companies and their, shall we say, tax dodging um, habits. And it's pretty depressing to look at. <laughs> but if you can't beat them, you know, you might as well join them in that sense. So get those dividends, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, there are at any given time, there's different, you know, policies in place across the world, um, trying to, to stop some of that tax dodging. Sure. So, so I, I, I think that the, the, the only other kind of, uh, uh, advice that I would offer. So now you're in your Roth 401k, um, your investments should be diversified. So, there is a kind of a fire allocation, um, or it might be a little old now, but uh, they, you know, we they'd invest in sixty percent VTI, forty percent VXUS, 
what VXU, we talked about VTI, VXUS is basically, it's, it's indexing a number of international companies. So um, you are, you know, like Warren Buffett, you're betting 60% on America, um, but your other 40% is, you know, based on international holdings so that you are balanced. Um, you know, if one of those things, if one, of, you know, if, if for whatever reason, <clears throat> you know, the, the U.S. dollar is depreciating against other foreign currencies, you are, you know, you're hedged against that risk. Gotcha. And so- that's really the key. Right, spreading your risk across the globe rather than just the fifty U.S. states. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, and that's a you know that's a way to diversify, quote unquote, with only investing in basically two um, stocks. You know, you can set up yourself to to invest automatically sixty percent, forty percent of X amount that you you know find that you're saving month over month. Um, you know, I I like to play. I like to have more interest in individual stocks, but I follow the same principle, right? Like for every dollar that I invest in, you know, financial services industries, I want to invest in energy, in you know, in retail, in uh, health insurance, in um, you know, uh, tech, right? Because the markets go in cycles and any one of those industries, any one of those companies could, f- you know, uh, found founder flounder, <laughs> um, flounder, any one of those companies could flounder, but I'm hedged against that by investing in companies that are almost, uh, sometimes the reciprocal of that, of that company. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even inside of energy, you'd probably be investing in, you know, fossil fuels and in solar or something of like that. So you're constantly balancing your risks off of each other a little bit. Is that a good way to put it? It is. It is. That's a great example. Um, it's, I don't know if we want to put this in the show, but um, I, so fossil fuel energy is one thing I do not invest in out of principle. Sure. Um, not it's, it's, I mean, frankly, it's financially, it's it's not the smartest financial position, but I I kind of believe that, you know, you're you're investing. You should be investing in things that you inherently believe in. Um, and, and so fossil fuels for me is one of those things that like I I just I just don't feel good about this. I want to invest in in green energy. So I'm missing out on things like discovering oil and <laughs> you know, surging. I mean, obviously those companies are getting crushed right now, but you know they'll bounce back. Everything is a cycle. Right. Okay. No, I got you. I got you. And I think that's a good point, though, about um, using your dollars in investment. If you have the ability to choose, I mean, where you put your money in, you know, your own little drop in the bucket way is contributing towards some change on some level. Again, it's a drop in the bucket, but I mean, every little drop counts at the end of the day. So I, I like that you brought that up, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I always, you know, when I, when I'm kind of helping to coach people about money, I think one of the things that, that, um, finance people get wrong is that they tend to only think about the dollars and cents. And I always think it's very important to quantify or to ascribe a dollar value to less tangible things. Um, you know, for instance, the, Smart move is not to, you know, if you're going to, if you have to travel somewhere, don't fly business class, 
Don't fly first class. Fly economy. Always do the cheapest thing. You can save more money. Um, but if you're somebody who really, really enjoys traveling in, in first class, like you, you should there. There is a value that you can ascribe to things that you know you you find enjoyment in that would. You know, if you ascribe a dollar value to it, well, that becomes the smarter choice then. Right. Yeah. I mean, and to sense. me, there is a dollar value to feeling good about my investments. Gotcha. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, because if I if I had the opportunity to fly to Europe, say I don't care about flying first class, I don't care about having a nice room to stay in even, but I'm gonna spend a lot of money on food there. Like a lot of that's where my budget's <laughs> gonna go. You know, that's my priority, you could say. Yeah. Now, people get into trouble when they just spend on luxuries after luxuries without actually having the, the, you know, the money to do so. And that's what we talked about in the earlier episode about your negative cash flow. Um, but, you know, <laughs> if you just run the numbers, it doesn't account for enjoying life. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> and, right. And at the end of the day, money should be used to augment a fantastic life and you need to take that into account as part of your equation sure sure all right dave i'm gonna throw a wrinkle at you here though because this has been all sunshine oh boy um as you and i've talked about a couple of times over our entire generation is under a pretty heavy amount of debt so how do you balance investing in something that's going to give you compound interest while also balancing the fact that you have compound interest going against you in the form of student debt or whatever debt you have. Yeah. It, um, it's a different world than the world of our, of our parents. Right. I think it's important to state that, um, you know, you, you had sent me a a graph earlier today, um, just about the, you know, the, the wealth gap and, you know, at age 25, what did various generations, what percentage of, you know, the, the total wealth did they own? Um, and millennials are at the very bottom, right? <laughs> yeah. Like crushingly um, so. It's, it's not even close. Yeah. I think just so the yeah. listeners know, uh, quick data. So right now, this is the year that um, millennials will all be turning 25 at the very least. Millennials being defined by being born uh, up until 1986, I forget, or 1996, apologies. Um, and so right now, basically millennials account for 5% of all U.S. household wealth, uh, which makes sense, you know, like we're, we're still pretty young, like we shouldn't have a huge amount of wealth. The catch is that Gen X, you know, um, by the same point in their life, they had accrued about 9% of uh, total wealth and the baby boomer generation was at 21% of U.S. household wealth at the same age, basically. So it, to illustrate Dave's point, it really, it, we do, our generation really is in a different financial position. So we have to kind of, we have to strike a different balance, which is why I really want to know what you have to say about it. Yeah, I think it's also important to, so, so I, so I think it's important to recognize that the the landscape you know the the starting point for millennials is different than other generations however i don't think it's as dire as those numbers would illustrate okay and and here's what i mean by that wealth is not a finite number right wealth increases if you're wealth 
period, just the amount of wealth in the world increases year over year. And, you know, a good, it's a difficult, difficult thing to understand. But if you think about, you know, the, the, you know, value of the Dow Jones, right? I mean, sure. We've gone from, <laughs> I don't know what it is today, actually, but I mean, that if you just look at that on a graph, it has increased year over year over year. What I think has happened is that a, as that wealth has increased, a very, very few people at the top take most of that created wealth. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that millennials have less wealth. It means we have less of the wealth that has been created. Okay, so to maybe use a really crude analogy, you know, if Gen X was, they bought like a medium pizza and they had a good portion of it. We have a smaller portion, but it's a large pizza that we're getting a slice from. <laughs> Does that make any sense? <laughs> I, I think so. Um, so. So let's put it this way, right? We have, we have less of a share of the total pie. That's, that's true. But, but because so much of that new created wealth is in the hands of so few, it hasn't really trickled down to other parts of the economy, right? Like, you know, if you think about the, the, um, the stimulus checks that just went out, those went out to everybody, right? And so that's going to cause inflation because everybody's you know, spending power of their dollar has just decreased because we added a trillion dollars to the total pile of money. So we're going to see prices for everything go up. But if the six people at the top have gotten all that additional wealth, a lot of that wealth is is hoarded or it's it's put into asset classes um, or, you know, spending categories that like normal people don't inhabit, right? We're not, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe yachts have gone up quite, the price of yachts has gone up quite a bit in like the last 20 years, but who cares? Like none <laughs> of us are going to ever buy a yacht. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is, so I, I just want to caveat, this is a gross, gross oversimplification. Of course. Right? I, yeah. I, yeah, we yeah, are yeah. still in a, <laughs> in a very, in a big, you know, the cards are stacked against us, right? Um, you know, an easy way to, to kind of point this out. So student debt obviously is, is huge, right? No generation like this has been burdened with the debt that we have. Um, you know, pri home prices relative to income has skyrocketed. Yep. You know, our 30 years ago, you would buy houses in, you know, the suburbs of Chicago, like nice houses for under hundred grand. And today that's laughable. You know, it's yeah. three, four or five times that price. Um, right. And wages haven't increased three or four or five times since that period. Right. Right. It's, it's harder to buy a house, just plain and simple, but it's not impossible. And, and investing is not impossible. And there are still gains to be had. Um, you know, if you look at home prices in the last year, They've skyrocketed. If you had invested in a home, you you know, you're you're looking at some massive, massive returns. Yeah, it's a good year to sell a house, probably. Yeah, it's a great year to sell a house. But then you gotta go turn around and buy something. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good point. Unless you own multiple houses. Yeah. In um, which case you're probably not listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> 
So, so I say that and I caveat that by because I have heard a lot of of rhetoric from you know my generation that the cards are stacked against us. So screw it. Sure. Like, Right, We're right, not right. going to even try to play the game because the game is rigged against us. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think the game is harder, but you can still play the game. It just requires a little bit more patience, thoughtfulness, delayed gratification. And this makes potentially makes me sound like an old curmudgeon. Um, but but it's so it's really is when you start looking at the numbers and you start running projections, like it's attainable at pretty low salaries. You know? I student debt is a is just, you know, that's a massive problem. But it's also one that if you really, you know, if you if you look at it, you can and and you do the the math and run the numbers like you can you can solve you know student debt fortunately um you know doesn't have the ridiculous amount of interest that something like credit card debt would have and so you can still set up a you know still set yourself up with a surplus put a portion of that towards your student debt um and other portions of that to other investments because you want to get money in there as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you know, if your interest... So, I mean, to get really practical, I mean, obviously it's hard to get practical without hard numbers, but how would you go about paying down debt while also investing? Yeah, so so it is a, it is a mentality shift. And I would recommend anybody who's interested in this, you know, start doing some research into fire into financial independence, retire early. Um, because you know, they like a lot of, there's a lot of case studies of real people who are, you know, in flight of their, of their retirement, you know, strategy, but they're throwing out hard numbers. So you can kind of see how their savings is, you know, how, like what they're saving, um, you know, how they're curbing their spending, what they're investing in, how that investments grow over time. And when you start doing that, you realize, wow, okay, these people aren't, aren't crazy. I mean, some of them are, have become crazy rich, but they didn't start that way. And they're doing this with sometimes, you know, considerable student debt, sometimes considerable credit card debt. Some, you know, a lot of people's, a lot of the the stories that come out of this community were brought on because people got themselves into trouble and they got themselves into so much trouble that they sort of hit rock bottom. They said, okay, I need to fix this. And then they, you know, turned their lives around completely, you know, complete 180, um, and dug themselves out of their hole and then, you know, started to build tremendous amounts of wealth. It's definitely possible. And the way that you need to start thinking about it, especially with debt is, you you know, don't be defeatist about it. You have to have a mentality of life throws you whatever it throws at you. And you can mope about it or you can say, well, here are my cards. What am I going to do with the cards that I've been dealt? Mm-hmm. I, I get that that might, I hope that that doesn't sound elitist. I don't mean it to sound elitist. Um, but, but that mentality is, you know, the, the mentality of woe is me is always going to end badly for you. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to take pity on you. <laughs> no, certainly no financial you know, the, institution. The, the only reasonable response is, 
okay, well, I got $150,000 in, in student loan debt. I've got 25 k in credit card debt. Um, I'm making 40 I, grand a year. You know, and I make 40 grand a year. All right, well, let's just, you know what? Okay, how much do I need to save? Half of my paycheck? How do I do that? And to your, I mean, it really sounds like you're saying your fundamental lifestyle will need to shift if you really want to change your financial course, which makes sense. I mean, yeah. again, going back to cash flow, if you need to save more, then you need to spend less money, which of course, you know, our, our economy is also built on consumerism. So it's a little tough to fight against that. But again, there's plenty of ways to make that choice. Like stop eating at restaurants. Like it's, it is possible yep. to not eat at a restaurant, to buy your own food and prepare it. Is entirely possible. It'll take a lot of work. You'll also become a much better cook, and you'll probably enjoy food more, in my humble opinion. But that is one way you mm-hmm. could you could save on your on your budget. A simple way too. It's possible to not own a car. Besides besides you know a house and student loan debt, a car is your your most expensive expense or your your largest expense typically. Um, mm-hmm. You know. There are parts of the country where, yeah, you'd probably need a car, but there are many parts of the country where you don't, where you can walk to work, bike to work, take public transit to work. Um, you know, major metropolitan cities, a lot, well, you know, unfortunately not all of them, but sure. a good deal of them, you can get away without without a car. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the eating in, um, you know, being thriftier with your discretionary spending, um, doing more of the work in yourself, in your life yourself, not outsourcing that work, sure. on your own lawn, cleaning your own house. Um, y- you know, what's really inspiring about some of these stories, these fire stories, is you have people who, you know, probably make decent money, maybe more money than you do. Um, but when they start tallying up their monthly expenses, I mean, they're spending, they're spending like almost nothing because they've, optimize their life in a way that is enjoyable to them, but doesn't, you know, doesn't cause them to spend everything that they take in. Sure. Sure. And I'm sure for all of them, that was a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow, you know, that first life, major life change they had to make. But as time goes on, and especially as you see the financial benefits, I can see how you would start to like enjoy having a more minimal life or having more minimal expenses. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at look at your habits over the course of the coronavirus. I I would bet that a lot of us increased spending on very frivolous things. And we <laughs> yep. did that because we were bored out of our minds. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um because because we were trying to fill, you know, the hole of not seeing people and being stressed and being in this pandemic with material goods. I mean, that's I feel a lot of material goods are, you know, trying to compensate for deficiencies in your life. You know, if you think about if you think about spending in that way, well, now you have a now <laughs> cutting back your spending doesn't seem like a, a burden. It seems like a, you know, an exercise in in bettering your mental health. Yeah, which takes us right back to our conversation with Garrett last week. You know? Yeah. Instead of, uh, I mean, another pandemic's thing that I certainly indulged in was like, yeah, sure, I'll have uh, a second, third, maybe fourth glass of wine tonight. Why not just skip mm-hmm. the bottle of wine altogether and meditate for 30 minutes? Because, yeah, I got into some habits in the pandemic that I'm like, 
I don't want to carry these forward with me anymore. They're not actually helping me. They're just kind of, they were a coping mechanism to get through moving to a new city, literally in the middle of the pandemic, well, right when the pandemic started. But that's not really a good way to continue living life. So it's painful at first, but reevaluating those decisions or just cutting them out and then taking that step forward day by day of like, okay, how do I readjust my life to my new circumstances? It's painful. It is not enjoyable, at least at first. <laughs> but a couple weeks in, a couple months in, I, I, I w- I'm not going to promise you, listener, but it will get better. You will find new ways to find joy, and those ways of finding joy are probably going to be healthier. Probably. Yeah. Finance and so many other things in life are really just a matter of perspective. Mm. How do you how do you choose to think about what happens to you? <laughs>